reversal of circumstances. In tonight's lesson, we see the first of those unexpected reversals, and that is that a Jewish orphan replaces the Queen of Persia. As we said in the introduction to the book last week, one of the major theological themes of the book of Esther is the providence of God. The word providence comes from a Latin word, providio, which means to see before or to see the affairs of life before they happen. The theological meaning of the word providence is God's activity resulting from foresight, not just his foresight. Theologically, we call that foreknowledge. Providence is more than just knowing what's going to happen ahead of time. Providence is being able to do something about it. You and I might be able to predict with some sense of accuracy some of the things that are going to happen tomorrow or the next day. You know, as soon as these ball games are finished tonight, somebody is in some city is probably out west of here somewhere is going to make a prediction on who's going to win the ball game and what they'll do is the the, the Super Bowl. What they'll do is they'll, they'll look at all their data that they have of when the, the teams perhaps have played before, and they'll, they'll get all the statistics together, and then they'll come up with their best guess. That's the best we can do. It's, it's kind of like predicting the weather. They have a pretty good idea, but not with certainty. But God knows with certainty what's going to happen, and unlike us, we may know for certain what's going to happen, or we may have a good idea what's going to happen with the weather tomorrow, but we can't change anything. These guys might have a real good idea who's going to win the Super Bowl, but they can't change it. God not only knows what's going on ahead of time, but if he desires to, he can alter what's going to happen in the future. So providence is God's activity resulting from foresight. The theological doctrine of providence is that God both possesses and exercises absolute power over all the works of his hand. God both possesses and exercises absolute power over all the works of his hands. While the name of God is not mentioned in Esther. That bothers a lot of people. The providence of God is on almost every page. As the book opens, Xerxes is making plans for what turned out to be his very ill-fated invasion of Greece. Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus, which is his Hebrew name, was one of the most powerful people in the world at that time. Economically, politically, and militarily. Last week we studied a 180-day initial planning session in which he gathered all the governors and, and the military leaders together in Susa and planned this invasion of Greece. After he finishes that, then Xerxes gives a seven-day banquet. And that's where we're going to enter into the narrative today. He's going to give a seven-day banquet that is not necessarily for all the governors and the, the powerful people. The seven-day banquet is for everybody. On the seventh day of the seven-day banquet, Xerxes, and I'm going to call him that because it's easier to pronounce than the other name, Xerxes has apparently had just a, a tad bit too much to drink. The text says the heart of the king was merry with wine. I, I think that's better than saying he was drunk off his keister, you know, but... <laughs> But what he does indicates that he was drunk off of his keister. You see, he had already, in the first part of these seven days, over the first six days, he had already shown off his great material wealth. All the, the linens and the gold and the silver. And now he wants to show off his wife. Now, let this be a warning to all of you gentlemen. It's never a good idea to get tipsy 
and bring your wife into it. Uh, it's, it's generally not going to work out the way that you planned. So Queen Vashti doesn't particularly care for the idea that Xerxes comes up with while, while Xerxes is a bit inebriated. Xerxes sends seven eunuchs to go get Vashti because he's going to show her off on the last day of this party. For the record, a eunuch is a male servant who has been castrated. Kings did that in the ancient world, and they put the eunuchs in charge of their harems for what I hope are obvious reasons. Also for the reason of not wanting anybody to be able to produce an offspring with either one of their concubines or one of their wives, which would end up being a threat to them at a later time. So eunuchs were, were generally non-threatening to the king. For whatever reason, and the text doesn't specify it, but for whatever reason, Vashti says, no, I'm not coming. The rabbis speculated in Midrash literature that her refusal to come was because the king was going to show her off naked. Where they come up with that, I have no idea, but that's Jewish tradition. According to the Talmud, another Jewish tradition, the queen refused to come because the angel Gabriel had struck her down with leprosy. Again, there's nothing in the, in the text that gives a hint to that. Actually, the author, human and divine author of this text, were more interested in the fact that she didn't come than why she didn't come. It's always going to be open to speculation as to why you would refuse the order of a king, whether that king is your husband or whether you're just a simple subject of the king. Any reason that we might come up with is speculative, but I think perhaps, given that the theme of this book is the providence of God, you think maybe God in his providence might have intervened to some way keep Vashti from coming. Of course, as you might imagine, this doesn't please Xerxes. And as I went through to great lengths last time to show you, Xerxes was one of the, if not the most powerful man in the world at the time. And the most powerful man in the world at the time was not used to not getting his way. And so when he sins for his wife, no matter what the reason, especially now if he's a bit tipsy doing it, he doesn't particularly appreciate the fact that she chooses not to come. Not only does it displease the king, but there's another group that have come in in the back door here that it doesn't please very much either, and that's the other men, the other members of the king's court. The reasoning is, if Vashti, if the queen can disobey the most powerful man in the world, the king, then what about our wives? They're going to see Vashti doing this, and it's going to be Susan B. Anthony times a million. And they're not going to like that at all. They're not anywhere close to wanting that to happen with their wives. So Xerxes calls his advisors together at this point and asks them a question. That's where we'll break into this narrative in chapter 1, verse 15. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she did not obey the command of the king, Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. And in the presence of the king and the princes, Mimukan said... He's one of the, his advisors. Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all of the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands, saying, queen Ahas King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. And this day the ladies of Persia and Media 
who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. So see, these other people step in the back door, and they're going to influence the king's decision because they think it's going to hurt their family relationship. And again, you see it. If the queen's not going to do it, why do I have to do it? In verse 22, we have the results of this proclamation. What happens is the king is going to make an edict to remove Vashti as the queen. That's going to be her punishment. Now, Vashti ought to be very happy that she wasn't living in Henry VIII's England, or else that would have been the least of all her problems. That's another reason, and I have no proof of this, but that's another reason why I wonder if God's providence wasn't just slightly involved, because he somehow causes Vashti to refuse to go, but he doesn't hurt her any more than not being queen. So verse 22, so he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each according to its script, and to every people according to their language, that every man, look at this, every man should be the master in his own house, and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. Yeah. I didn't hear what he said, but I've heard his stuff before, and I can, and I can believe it's probably pretty good. Yeah, right, what uh, some of you are saying. Then we get to chapter 2. So that's how it ends. He's going to remove Vashti as queen. And then he kind of abruptly ends. And then when chapter 2 begins, we have these words after these things. Well, actually, there's a lot that's going on between chapter 1 and chapter 2. One of the things that's going on is this ill-fated expedition to conquer Greece. You see, that occurred in 479. Our book opens in 482. Xerxes is defeated in two major battles in Greece in 479. He's defeated at the, the naval battle of Salamis, and he's defeated in another battle called Plataea. He leaves after Salamis and comes back home. After Plataea, everybody comes back home, and there has been a great and significant defeat for the Persian people in between chapters 1 and chapter 2. Just to kind of show you where we are here, this is the map of the Persian Empire. It covers essentially most of the Middle East today. Susa is where you see the red dot. The battles that took place are, where, are over in Greece, far to the west from Susa. And so this is what's happened in between chapters 1 and 2. And that might help explain a little bit more about the wording of chapter 2, verse 1. After these things... When the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. That almost seems like an odd statement until we realize that in his life, Xerxes had had a lot of things go on between the time that he issues this decree and the time he gets back around to it. The last thing on his mind is coming up with a new queen. Because here's the most powerful man in the world that has suffered one of the greatest military defeats in terms of its consequences that has ever been suffered. So that lets us know a little bit about the terminology in chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti. Now, in both Old Testament and New Testament, the word remembered doesn't necessarily mean, oh, listen, I, I recall that to mind. In both Old Testament and New Testament, it typically has an action associated with it. So when it says he's, he remembered, he's gonna, now he's going to act on trying to find himself a new queen. In verses 2 through 4, there's a search for the most beautiful virgin 
in the empire. Then the king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather every young beautiful virgin to Susa, the capital, to the harem, to the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, and let their, cos- and let their cosmetics be given to them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did so accordingly. Well, that's part of the benefit of being the king. You know, you got a, a nationwide talent search or beauty search. you got a nationwide Miss Persia contest to see who's going to be the next queen of Persia. In verse 5, we're then introduced to one of the major players in the book. Now, there was a Jew in Susa. The capital, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jar, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives, who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, exiled. So Mordecai is a Benjaminite. That's probably going to be significant later on in the book. He's a descendant of Kish, his family was among those Jews who left Palestine during the captivity of Nebuchadnezzar. This is where it gets a little hard. If Mordecai was one of the, one of the individuals who actually left during the exile, by the time we get here, he's going to be at least in his 90s. And that's if he was an infant when the exile took place. More likely, it was one of these others, maybe even Kish, the Benjaminite, who was the one that left, and then perhaps Mordecai was born in exile. It's, it's nothing I would fight over, but Mordecai doesn't appear to be quite in his 90s at this time, so I, I'm going to guess that it may, may more likely have been the family that was exiled, and then Mordecai is born, as well as Esther, in captivity. In verse 7, and he was bringing up Hadasha. That is Esther. Hadasha is the Hebrew name for Esther. It means something like myrtle, myrtle tree. Esther is said now here to be without mother or father, but she was beautiful in form and face. And when her mother and father died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So this is someone who's very special to Mordecai. He's raised her, and the text tells us that she's she's beautiful with regard to her physicality she's also beautiful with regard to her face that's esther from the very beginning as this talent search goes on in verse 8 this man haggai not haggai the prophet this is a different one spelled differently he takes a shine to esther somehow they find her and in the last half of verse 8 she's put into the custody of haggai that Esther was taken into the king's palace to the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him, so he quickly provided her with cosmetics and food. I've always found that to be interesting. It's literally portions. Today, people spend millions trying to get skinny. But back then, skinny was, in the ancient world, skinny wasn't really in. So they wanted to make sure that the, the... the virgins in this narrative are, are not looking emaciated in any way. Twiggy wouldn't have made the, the final cut in this court. 
they give her cosmetics, and then they give her food, which I've always felt like that was a little bit of an interesting way to put it. Transferred her and the maids to the best place, and her maids into the best place in the harem. Right off the bat, we see another working of the providence of God. The fact that there's an opening is part of the providence of God. The fact that out of all the beautiful women in the land, and there's a, I showed you before, it's a huge place, so there had to be hundreds of thousands of, of really beautiful women. Somehow she gets picked. And not only does she get picked, but somehow she gains the favor of the one who's really in charge of the whole process. Is that an accident? Is that luck? Or is that providence? From the very beginning, she finds favor with the king's right-hand man, the right-hand eunuch, who's handling this search. He gives her special care with the best maids taking care of her and making sure that she's got everything she needs to win the king's favor. In the meantime, Esther doesn't tell anybody that she's Jewish. And Mordecai, once she gets into the palace, Mordecai makes a, makes a special effort to look in on her as much as he can. He may not be able to go into the palace, but he goes by all the time, seeing if he can't get messages from her, making sure that everything is going along well with her. Now down to verse 12. Now when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and cosmetics for women. I don't know if you get that, but, but before you get to get into the king, there's a six months makeover. Not just one of these hour or two things. You, you're getting made over for six months in the king's palace before you ever get to come to him. Verse 13, the young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Verse 14, in the evening she would go in the morning. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem the custody of Shagaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go again into the king unless the king delighted in her and was summoned by name. Now look, in verse 15, now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihal, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her in as his daughter, came to the king, this is music to a lot of men's ears, she did not request anything. <laughs> now you want to become a queen? All right, she didn't request anything except what Haggai the king's unit who was in charge of the women advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, his royal palace, in the tenth month, which is the month to Beth, in the seventh year of his reign. She becomes queen. And the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so he set the royal crown on her head. She becomes queen. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. There's nothing in this passage here that says he was inebriated when he does the second banquet. But all, all seriousness, I wonder about some of those Jewish traditions about, you know, putting her on display in kind of a vulgar way because it's almost like he's testing Esther right from the get-go. Do you see that? He throws another banquet. Let's see if Esther shows up or if she doesn't. And she certainly comes to the banquet. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, when Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. 
For Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. So even though this girl is now the queen, Mordecai still has her ear. So as the narrative closes, we have a complete and an unexpected reversal of circumstances. You've got a girl who was an orphan and a Jew living in a land that was not her own. Even though she had been born there, she's still in exile in that land. Perhaps the last possible person that you would think that would ascend to be queen of Persia and the wife of still, even though he had suffered defeat, even still he's one of the most powerful men in the world. Was it accidental? Was it luck? No. Probably not. 